from a developmental point of view, the developmental lens that we now look at is we're much more interested in the nonverbal piece, the social gaze, the referencing, the use of gestures, the use of emotional tone. Those are the foundations for communication that need to be in place for social pragmatics to be able to unfold in a warm, interactive environment. Welcome to Tilt Parenting, a podcast featuring interviews and conversations aimed at inspiring, informing, and supporting parents raising differently wired kids. My name is Debbie Reaver, and I'm the host of this show. And my guest today is Sherry Kahn, a speech-language pathologist who has specialized in the assessment and treatment of infants, toddlers, and school-aged children with developmental challenges for over 38 years. Sherry has incredible experience and also a bird's-eye view of the field and how it has evolved in the past several decades. She's also a leading practitioner of the DIR floor time model in speech and language development, having trained extensively with Dr. Stanley Greenspan and Dr. Serena Wider, and trains other professionals throughout the U.S., Europe, and Asia on the theoretical and clinical concepts of DIR floor time. In our conversation today, Sherry shares a wealth of knowledge about communication disorders. We cover everything from the different ways the communication disorders show up and what speech-language pathology is, to what types of issues speech-language pathologists support children with, and what signs might be indicators to parents that their child could benefit from working with one. And now here is my conversation with Sherry. Hey, Sherry, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Debbie. I've been looking forward to a meeting with you. I'm looking forward to this conversation. You're the first speech language pathologist that we've had on the show. I think there's a lot that we can cover today. And I'm just looking forward to sharing your expertise. So to get started, I always love to just ask guests to introduce themselves. So if you could tell us a little bit about you and what you do in the world, that would be great. Of course. Well, you just heard Debbie introduce me as uh, Sherry Kahn. I'm a practicing speech-language pathologist. I am going to say this quietly, but this month I start my 50th year as a speech pathologist. And uh, people always ask me, is there a reason you haven't retired? And I think the reason would be is that I still love the work. And there's new innovations and strategies and clinical thinking that still makes my socks go up and down. And um, I'm on a mission to train as many clinicians and families to think in a more developmentally minded way as more children become evaluated and we learn more about different learning styles as experts in communication. We need to be up to date and flexible in our thinking of how to help support young children, young, young children, as well as school-aged children, adolescents, and on to adulthood. So uh, I have two clinics. I live in the Chicagoland area. I have one in the suburbs of Northbrook, Illinois, and I have a, a multidisciplinary clinic where we work with children looking through different developmental lenses. And I also have an office in the city of Chicago in the Lincoln Park area. Uh, I've been lucky enough to uh, work in public schools, work in the private sector, uh, work in a clinical setting, and 
have um, studied and been mentored by some of the best in the business, whether it be psychologists, occupational therapists, educators, parents, of course, always are my are my best tools for learning. And so I'm lucky enough to have been doing this all this time. And that's why I hope I can be of help. Wow. I 50 years. First of all, just congratulations. That's <laughs> incredible. I'm sorry, you whispered it, but I that's a huge accomplishment. And it, it is. It's incredible. Um, so I actually would love to hear, you know, just a bird's eye view of how things must have changed over the course of those 50 years. But before we do that, could you even just define speech language pathology as a discipline or tell us what a speech language pathologist does? Well, I think the way to define it is to say that we sort of have a misnomer, right? Because the minute you think of it, uh, someone as a speech therapist, because actually when I graduated, we were called speech correctionists. And it it's interesting that we were correcting speech, but so you get a degree in speech and language pathology, which in effect gives, so most people, most states in the United States, you have to have a license to do this. And with that license, you have, a, your state has said, you have, are qualified to work with and evaluate children who have a communication disorder. And what that means is that there are several areas of of communication disorders that we think about and that most clinicians are trained in. One is when you think of speech therapy, you think of how intelligible or how clear a child's speech might be. You remember... um, kids who might have a frontal lisp and might say thoop for soup, or you might know kids that say wabbit for rabbit, Um, or you might know children that are more difficult to understand. And that's your first, most parents are interested in, oh, the way he talks doesn't make sense. When in fact, the most powerful Parts of being a speech pathologist center around our understanding of how a child comprehends information coming into them and how they express it. And there's several factors around that. So if you think of communication disorders as a big umbrella, under that umbrella, we would be looking at receptive language, which is the ability to understand. And actually, that happens right at birth. And that follows, if, you, if you've heard um, children that might have an auditory processing disorder, so when you hear that word auditory processing, we're really talking about receptive language. It's just really the discipline that's talking about it. So if you're talking to a psychologist or you're talking to someone who specializes in learning disabilities or even an occupational therapist, they might use the word auditory processing. But it all backs up to what speech pathologists do is that we're looking at comprehension of auditory verbal information. And there's a whole paradigm and there's a whole developmental process for that. But you can see how there's an overlap between what teaching reading, being able to stay in a noisy room, or be able to listen to what someone is saying while there's noise in the background, all of that has to do with how you're comprehending speech, but sound at the same time. And I think there are a lot of people that like to stay in their discipline, and I wish it was that way. When I graduated, it was that way. Speech people did speech. 
people with specialists in learning disabilities just worked with those kind of kids, reading people, did reading. But that just isn't the way we know how development unfolds. It's a, it's a developmental process where all sorts of different learning happens in many different ways at the same time, and they all affect each other. Now, expressive language has lots of parts to it. It's the articulation that I talked about, but even more importantly, it's how you put words together to make sounds, then sentences, and even more importantly is what we call the pragmatics of language, or how we decide what to say to someone in response to something they've asked us. And that's probably the most difficult challenge that speech pathologists or families might notice first when they're thinking about children with communication disorders. So that's more of the social use of language. How do you how do you know how far away to stand from someone? Some kids like to get really close up, right? You know, or touching or what so forth. That would be something we would look at from a social pragmatic standpoint. How does the child understand the social use of language? And that's where the young, young child before 18 months practices that with their caretaker or their parent in the first, I would say, 18 months. That's why the right brain grows much larger in the first year and a half than the left brain. It corresponds with the left brain taking over for speech, which happens between about 15 and 18 months where kids start using first words. But the pragmatic aspect of language is probably the one question parents ask the most. Why can't my child talk with another child? Why does it look like he doesn't understand what that child is saying? How can he not understand nonverbal cues or gestures? I mean, for example, you and I are talking with each other on the phone, and when I stop talking, you intuitively know to either make a comment or ask me another question, right? Mm-hmm. Right. It's your, it's your social communication that's telling you that. And you weren't taught to do that. You were wired to do that. We come into the world wired to be social. And we have all sorts of ways of doing it in the first year that set the foundation for how it's going to look when you're you're one and a half, you're two, and you're three, and you're four. Because in the the numbers game, by the time you're four years old, you have about 95% of what you need to communicate. Now, I'm not talking about higher level figurative language, you know, being able to write an expository text. What I am talking about is understanding the use of meaningful words of understanding when your partner doesn't have enough information, of being able to explain or say why you don't like something. And that happens by four. Amazing, right? Mm -hmm. It's an amazing amount of information a child learns by the time they're four. That's why we know so much. The research is heavy and so well studied in terms of how young children learn to communicate. It's, that's probably the most exciting information that's, that's been going on and is on the horizon of what we know about communication. Does that, is that helpful? Yeah, absolutely. And it's making me realize just what a broad field speech language pathology is. I think many of our listeners and, and myself included, you know, I thought it was much more narrow in terms of the work that you did. And and as far as I know, and maybe one of the 
therapist that Asher worked with when he was in a public school with his IEP may have been an SLP, but he has primarily worked with OTs. And it sounds like the work that you do, especially around those social cues, this would be relevant for all kinds of kids, kids, you know, on the spectrum, kids with ADHD, kids with sensory issues, just a really wide variety of children. Right. Which is why you never really look at a diagnosis. You have to look at where the child is developmentally. And and what I mean by developmentally is, what does his individual profile look like? How is that child? And and, and mind you, you can't do that in a 30-minute screen on a child, nor do a lot of the tests for communication disorders tell a child's whole story. So you have to go deeper. And the person that you're going to go deeper with is the parent, because there's no one more important to that child than the parent, and there's no one more important to the parent than that child. And so part of any evaluation or part of any understanding of communication is who is that child and you know who are the parents and what's been their experience with communication and have they themselves ever had speech and language therapy or saw a speech pathologist and a really good developmental occupational therapist by the way Demi really understands the importance of nonverbal communication Because when you hear speech, for example, it's the most salient piece of developmental information that a parent can grab onto. You know, it's the one thing that would put you at ease if your pediatrician said, well, how many words does he have? And if you as the parent said, well, he hasn't really started speaking yet, but I was a late talker, my husband was a late talker. And so a parent would be very open to having a speech pathologist meet with a child. But in that case, they might be looking to say is, well, he's not using words. When in fact, from a developmental point of view, the developmental lens that we now look at is, we're much more interested in the nonverbal piece, the social gaze, the referencing, the use of gestures, the use of emotional tone. Those are the foundations for communication that need to be in place for social pragmatics to be able to unfold in a warm, interactive environment, if that makes sense. That sets the foundation. Words, that's the easiest for us. But it's the clinicians that are not looking at these foundational pieces and getting those in order in the beginning with, you know, really toddlers and so forth, that we go back and we have children with more fragmented language, more perceptive language, or children that, in there's a word that we use, sorry to use jargon, called contingent responses. You might see that uh, word on an IEP. And on the IEP, it means, can the child make an appropriate response to someone that made what we call a communication bid? So let's say the speech therapist said, hey, John, you want to play with Max now? And John didn't answer. He might have walked away. You would ask yourself as a clinician, well, did he not understand? Did he have anxiety over what the teacher asked him to do? Or maybe he just didn't want to do that, right? So as a clinician, you're always asking yourself questions, or or rather I would say a developmentally-minded SLP, which is what we call ourselves, speech-language pathologists. An SLP would say, what made the child go away? 
how do we woo him back and how do we keep him there? So those are the three questions I tell the clinicians in my office. And I say to parents all the time, it's not that we did anything wrong, but we might have missed a cue. So for me as the speech pathologist, my job is to help a parent see, oops, something went wrong there. How can we repair that? Because it's in the repair that we get the communication to be attempted again. This year, I've been working on becoming more attuned to my body. And so I'm starting to really recognize how periodic spikes in anxiety or disruptions to my routines can seriously throw my whole system off. And as I've been traveling a ton this past month, which is both disruptive and somewhat stressful, I'm especially glad that I have the extra support of Symbiotic Plus, a three-in-one supplement from Ritual with clinically studied prebiotics, probiotics, and a postbiotic to support a balanced gut microbiome. Symbiotic Plus provides fuel to the cells that make up the gut lining to support a healthy gut barrier. And it comes in this very cool minty delayed release capsule, which was specifically designed to help survive the harsh conditions of the upper GI tract for delivery to the colon. The bonus is that the capsules don't need to be refrigerated, so I can easily bring them with me in my carry-on. On a personal level, I love that Ritual is committed to sustainability. They're a female-founded B Corp, meaning they are holding themselves accountable long-term to not only think about their company's financial health, but also the health of people and our planet. There's no more shame in your gut game. Symbiotic Plus and Ritual are here to celebrate, not hide your insides. Get 25% off your first month for a limited time at ritual.com slash tilt. Start Ritual or add Symbiotic Plus to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash tilt for 25% off. So in our house these days, Darren and I have been working together to up-level our nutrition and healthy lifestyle habits. Maybe it's our age, our changing bodies, my shifting hormones, whatever the reason, I'm here for it. And that's why I'm loving Green Chef, a meal company that makes eating well easy with plans to fit every lifestyle. Green Chef offers gut-friendly recipes each week and is committed to providing a holistic approach to nutrition by offering meals that contribute to the overall well-being of your entire body. Darren and I are particularly big fans of their nutrient-dense, science-backed gut and brain health recipes, developed in partnership with registered dietitians that improve digestion, reduce bloat, and also boost energy and immunity. This week's favorites, turkey, black bean, and sweet potato chili, and the Baja chicken bowls with mango salsa. I mean, don't those sound delicious? But if that's not your thing, you can choose from a variety of customized meals to suit your lifestyles with preferences like keto, vegan, vegetarian, fast and fit, Mediterranean, gluten-free, and protein-packed. Whatever you choose, you'll get farm-fresh ingredients, organic whole fruits and veggies, and premium proteins, along with chef-crafted, nutritionist-approved recipes delivered straight to your door. Go to greenchef.com slash 60tilt and use code 60tilt to get 60% off plus 20% off your next two months. That's 60% off plus 20% off your next two months when you use the code 60TILT at greenchef.com slash 60TILT. Green Chef, the number one meal kit for eating well. So what kind of things for parents who are listening and are thinking or, or questioning maybe I should bring my child to a speech language pathologist for an evaluation? You know, what Beyond those, uh, a child who's maybe not using language, verbal language in the way we would expect by a certain age, what are some of the other signs that they would be looking for? 
Well, I will say this to you. If a parent is first approached about a speech and language uh, challenge and he's already entered school, let's use that as our as our benchmark. So, you know, there's a lot of times that children go right through daycare, preschool, and and nothing's noted in their in their communication. They seem to be very social. They, um, you know, all the, in the preschool, they are, you know, a well-liked child who have good social, good social skills. Um, and so those kinds of kids may not stand out in a preschool. But when you get to kindergarten, and we all know that kindergarten is very different, certainly than when I went, but I bet it's also different than when you went, Debbie, in terms of that, because it used to be more preschool-based with lots of time for social communication and play, and play is really, really important, and then children would get the opportunity to practice all of these social communication skills. But now, all-day kindergarten is serious business. Uh, So people are working on phonemic awareness or this ability to hear differences between sounds. And to and that's setting them up for phonics down the road. Um, even some sight words or this this interest in journaling. Every kindergarten is journaling, and this idea of having ideas to put into a story, and coming to the rug, following directions, being able to know that when the teacher says, "Okay, kids, we got to come to the rug," that the child can say, "I have to stop what I'm doing and be able to move myself." over to follow direction. So this is where it gets a little grayer. So I want to say that, you know, how do you differentiate between what's attention, uh, you know, for a child coming to the rug to hear the story of the day um, and then getting the directions of what's at the different learning centers, as opposed to did they not hear it because they weren't listening or did they not hear it because they didn't understand it? So if a teacher notices that in the classroom, she might have her speech pathologist in the school come and say, can you, you know, can you come and and listen to this little guy or observe? We'll also be looking to see, you know, what's the child's interest in literacy? Can they retell a story? By five and six, you should be able to retell a familiar story or even on a, for example, a wordless picture book that five-year-olds love and I personally love children to get lots of practice with that is to be able to anticipate what's going to happen next. And this is why everybody stresses in preschool, the best therapy you can give your child is reading to them. I mean, you can't, you can't have a better gift than that. So that's the first time we see that there, if the child isn't understanding all the directions in the classroom, can't retell a story, can't answer why questions or how questions or when questions. So one is a, how is, how do you sequence? If I said to a five-year-old, well, how do you brush your teeth? A typical five-year-old could say, well, you put toothpaste on a toothbrush and then you go up and down and up and down and spit. That's what they would say. It wouldn't necessarily have to be in complete sentences, but you would have an idea that they would know, you know, they would understand what to do. Um, So that would be it. When indicates a temporal idea of time and space. So you would understand words of position like up and down and around and behind and over and under and next to and beside. And you would know that beside and next to mean the same thing. And you could follow directions with two 
or three of those directions inside of there. And think about a regular kindergarten classroom. There's a lot happening in there. So let's say, for example, that you're a kid that can be overstimulated visually by a wonderful room that kindergarten teachers set up. If you are overstimulated, you might not be paying attention, which could lead to poor processing of auditory verbal information. And that you might look like you don't understand, but the room itself might interfere, right? And so it would require an SLP to maybe observe in the classroom, besides using some standardized testing. In the world of communication disorders, we have some excellent standardized tests. We do, you know, without a doubt. But does that always tell the whole story? I would suggest that it doesn't, because the problem with doing any formal testing is that the clinician has to work within the confines of what the test says is an acceptable response. So, for example, if we're testing a child's expressive vocabulary, there's a number of tests on the market that are well standardized, have good reliability studies, and give reliable information. And for insurance purposes, and to make a child eligible in a, in a public school program, we would need that kind of formal data. But I'm going to suggest that I think the information is, was the child like taking a test? Where did you notice he, he had more difficulty? You know, when there was a, a picture with the question, or when you didn't have a picture and you just asked him questions? Was it easier for him to understand repeating a sentence of nonsense words as opposed to uh, repeating a sentence with more meaningful words? Were numbers easier than words if we're looking at auditory memory? We're mostly interested in seeing how well can the child converse with us? Or is he always asking, am I almost done? Can I go back to my classroom? Which would also say to us, is the child anxious? And are we seeing a true picture? So in clinic, we always see the child. Well, first we get insurance approval, of course. But we always want to see the child in his most natural environment. And we always want to have a chance to play with them before we actually do formal testing. Now, that can, as you can tell, that could probably work two ways because we're pretty fun when we play and why would you want to go sit at a table and do work if if someone's playing but we often get to see them at the t- the children at the top of their range when we start with symbolic thinking and symbolic play and that gives us a window to why they might we might not be seeing their true communication abilities as well so you have to look at the informal and the formal and then you have to look at family history child's birth history and see what happened during his uh, the child's preschool years. Now, the, the higher we go up in age, the more you become an expert at the body and the learning style you have. And so for some children, we don't even find out if there's difficulty with um, what we call uh, word retrieval. And we often see it when the children's vocabulary or the decoding of words is not moving forward. Sometimes the end of second grade, because the difference between second grade and third grade from a communicative perspective is a very important jump in abilities. So oftentimes the parents will say, you know, the teacher is concerned about his vocabulary or he seems to have difficulty coming up 
with the correct word. So he might look at a telescope and say, binoculars, close, but not exactly. Or he might say, he might look at an apple and say fruit, which would be right, but on a standardized test, it would have to be apple for it to count. But if a child makes a number of errors in that way, we would say to ourselves, hmm, I wonder if this child has some word retrieval problems. And we all have difficulty calling words up. And you know, if you're in a a situation and you didn't write down your grocery list and you say, oh, I'll just go in the store and I'll remember. And sometimes that works, but sometimes you might be at the deli counter and you know you need something and you can't remember it. Even if you go through all the letters of the alphabet or you go through all the shelves in your refrigerator and you can't get it and then you'll walk away of course you'll remember it or you'll go home and you'll you'll remember it but these are these are little strategies that you and I have learned as adults but for some of our kids they can't get there and so we have a series of evaluations that will really help a child get there and actually speech therapy for a child that's been diagnosed with word retrieval problems is some of the most successful has and those interventions have some of the most successful outcomes, but it affects reading and it affects writing down the road. We usually can pick it up. If we see the child as a preschooler, we usually can anticipate where there might be challenges at, uh, at, in first and second and first and second grade. But you can see there's sort of like a domino effect here, right? Yeah, absolutely. And I'm, as you're talking, you know, I'm, just feeling like there have to be a lot of kids who just slip through the cracks because oh. it just seems like they're not listening, they're not paying attention, they're daydreaming, they're purposely choosing to not follow instructions. I'm kind of curious, going back to that question I wanted to ask earlier about you being in this field for so long, how have you seen things change? Are we moving in the right direction? Are schools and educators more aware of these issues and considering deeper reasoning behind a child's behavior in the classroom? Well, it depends where you live and it depends the school district's, you know, educational mission. But I would say in the early, early 1970, there weren't even words like learning disability or attention deficit disorder. There were words like minimal brain damage, MBD. Um, And that was scary, right? But I grew up in the Vietnam era. So all of these guys were coming back with all these issues and they were using, you know, it was probably post-traumatic stress, you know, at the time. But all of the carcinogens and stuff that were in in the air, I think, had an effect on that. So have things changed? Dramatically but a lot of clinicians haven't. And so there are more clinicians that hold on to a more traditional sense, particularly if you're in the public schools, because everything has to be documented. Not that we don't document, but we're allowed to follow a developmental profile. So by that, I mean, is that in an IEP, there's huge books of IEPs that say, if a child has a word retrieval disorder, I'm just using this as an example, or they have an articulation disorder, we will write the IEP um, for those people listening. You know how that works. That works off of percentages. And each quarter, you just change something by one tiny little dimension to see if the child's made progress. So that always, I'm an advocate. I do a lot of work in the schools where I represent our clients that go there. And 
I think speech pathologists in the schools have a very hard job because they have to be a general. They have to know a little bit about everything. And that's not always easy to, to do that. And so their IEP goals may not really reflect the child's developmental profile. And I, what I mean is their, their motor profile, their sensory profile, their communication profile, their social-emotional profile, that seems to be very departmentalized. When in fact, research is talking to us about how we have to look at things through these developmental lenses, because each area of development is dependent on the other. So I would say that's maybe changed in the last 20 years, but in baby steps. So I still think we have a ways to go in that way. But I think parents can be really good advocates when they really understand what's going on, you know, what is exactly interrupting a child's, I'm going to use communication because that's my area of expertise, what's interfering with their communication challenge because, yes, you could have ADHD and a communication disorder. In fact, there's sort of a classic profile with that. So oftentimes we see kids come in for speech and we already see their their need to move quite a bit. And so they miss some of the the details in sending a communicative message. And so I think the more as clinicians we can be informing parents, the better advocates parents are. And not in a, a way that sounds angry or anything. I just think that it's my job and my job to inform my clinicians to help work with the SLP and the special ed team at the school to say, how can we look at this goal and measure it so we're really getting accurate data? Hey there, it's Debbie. I love making this show and sharing conversations about how to support our awesome neurodivergent kids. I've seen how even one little insight from an interview can spark a big shift in daily life. But I know that raising complex kids can be messy and lonely. And just when we think we figured it out, something comes up that boots us right back to feeling overwhelmed and stuck. That's why I've poured everything into creating a way for parents like us navigating complex parenting journeys to join together and chart a path that feels positive, hopeful, and doable. It's the brand new Differently Wired Club experience. In the club, you'll get personal support from me and other seasoned parent coaches, six live calls every month where you can connect and get your personal questions answered, the opportunity to learn directly from authors and experts like I have on this show, monthly themes for getting specific and tactical, an exclusive private podcast feed, and the best, most generous community of parents. Seriously, these folks show up for themselves and each other, and that right there is really everything. Because it's a daily reminder that we're not alone. Our kids aren't broken, and we have totally got this. The recently rebooted Differently Wired Club is on a brand new platform with its very own iOS and Android app. It is such a great space. However you learn, whatever your style, no matter the ages, genders, and neurodivergent profile of your children, the Differently Wired Club can help you cultivate the positive shifts you're hoping for. Join us today by going to tiltparenting.com slash club. That's tiltparenting.com slash club. I hope to see you on the inside. I'm Margaret. And I'm Amy. And together we host the podcast, What Fresh Hell? Laughing in the Face of Motherhood. Margaret, I would say you're sort of a where are my keys kind of mom. Correct. Sometimes a where are my kids kind of mom. (laughs) 
Well, you're aiming more of a, we were supposed to leave 35 seconds ago, Mom. I mean, touche. In each episode of What Fresh Hell, we come at a topic from our usually completely opposite perspectives. I bring the research. And I bring kind of the gimlet eye. Like, is that research really going to work, people? And almost 10 million downloads later, we're still laughing. We also talk to experts in the parenting field, plus parents with stories we can all learn from. We make each other laugh, we challenge each other's assumptions, and we have what we think is the best parenting community on the internet. Check out What Fresh Hell? Laughing in the Face of Motherhood wherever you listen to podcasts. So if we have a child that is more self-directed and they're working on peer relationships and the child doesn't respond to a communicative bid from another child. And you're, you're saying with an adult prompt, he with four adult prompts, he will do it 85% of the time. What are we taking data on the prompt that you're giving him or anything spontaneous? You know, why does it only have to be in percentages? Can't we look at something for, a five-minute period or set up something that's in the child's interest and then take the data. So my goal as an advocate is to go in and say, we're, we're both going for the same communicative goal. We're just taking data in a different way. The other thing that gets in our way is RTI. Of course, I just forgot what, um, I just can't tell you what the acronym now is because <laughs> this is what happens after 50 years. I can you know, it's a, a tiered program that looks at kids' severity, for example, in communication disorders and decides, you know, I'll look at them once a month or I'll see them in, the, I'll push into the classroom and maybe work on the S sound and the R sound, but I'm not going to uh, enroll him as a special needs kid and give him an IEP. So I think that often happens with, uh, I can't believe I can't remember RTI, to intervene. So with the T and the I is to intervention. Respond. I just Re looked it up. Response to intervention. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> See, there was a word finding problem there. <laughs> I was going through the alphabet. I knew I would get there eventually. <laughs> but, but what I'm saying, Debbie, is that if you have a kid in RTI and he's still at the lowest level, he could, it could be a year since maybe he gets a full evaluation or they noticed word retrieval, right? And they're working on articulation. So there's that's always where, for me, the rubber hits the road, and we have to up that. We have to sort of, in a collaborative way, help the school move to opening up a case study for that child. Because communication disorders often reveal other areas of difficulty. It could be reading, could be writing, could be... Um, just the ability to be socially present and mindful. And of course, you know, I could talk about this uh, forever because that's another thing I want to do is, is say to SLPs, we can work together just because I'm in the private sector. Doesn't mean that I want to write your IEP. I don't because it doesn't matter if I write your IEP. You're the person that has to deliver those strategies. Mm -hmm. But together we could make a beautiful team. How can parents be the best advocates they can be? What should they be paying attention to in the school system? So I would say, and again, I'm, I would say this for a reading specialist. I would say this for a, the social worker. I always laugh now, particularly in Illinois, where I'm from, is that sometimes the social workers and the speech pathologists work together on social groups for kids with social communicative disorders. But a lot of times it's out of the speech pathologist's hands. And that's like, 
that's crazy, right? I mean, this is what this is what we do. This is our baby. We should be advocating. And oftentimes it's the social worker who's following a curriculum. And so she picks up the kindergarten curriculum and she has the kindergartner in it. But what if that's not where he's at? How do you go back down and, you know, where is that in the goal that he's not there yet? This is what we're going to work on. That would be one thing is I, as the parent, I would ask them to, number one, to get a better understanding of Tell me what therapy is going to look like. When when I first talk with a parent, and I'm sure this is, happens for you, Debbie, too, when you, you're, I mean, we're not even looking at each other, and yet we're able to communicate, even though you're letting me do all the talking. If I was meeting a parent for the first time, for me, the first phone call is where the relationship begins. And talking with the parent, you, as an intuitive clinician, and yes, I have a lot of experience, for sure. And I've worked on this, of course, that I want to know about as much about that child and that parent as I can so I get a better understanding of the parent's worries as well as what joy that the parent is able to find. You know, What do they like to do the best with their children? So I am ready with those kinds of things when that child comes into clinic. But the most important thing is, is that my job is to be a clearinghouse for the parent. So I'll send them articles. If they, if the teacher says, I'm going to have my speech pathologist take a look, I would want to talk with that speech pathologist first. I want a relationship with that person. I want to know what's your experience in working with kindergartners and, and do you do formal tests? Do you go to observe? Do you get to know my child before you test him? Because when you come to that meeting, it will be you, another special ed coordinator, you'll be sitting at the table together, and they'll be, they'll be giving you test scores. You know, my, my feeling is, and this is a, a, on a personal note as a parent, is that we cannot tell parents six things their children can't do. We can tell them three, but you can't tell them six, because there's some research that says that parents really can only listen for 10 minutes. And I, as a parent... Now, my children are adults, children of their own now, but I remember being in that room and hearing only screaming in my ear that you have to stop talking now. You cannot say another thing. This is my baby you're talking about. And so I'm very sensitive to how much a parent can hear. And particularly when this is the first time they're finding out their child might have a communication disorder and what that means down the road for them educationally and so forth. So I, I think I think that that's really important information. And, and I always like to tell um, a parent, when you go into the meeting, you want to see a draft of the report before you go in. Because there might be things in there that aren't right, particularly if you're the parent and you were sitting in on the evaluation. Mm-hmm. No, that's, that's very good advice. And it's something, yeah, we've talked about in previous episodes. So thank you for... For repeating that it's it's a tough position to be in and it's tricky in in terms of really trying to design positive alliances with educators in the school system and that's something I really want to be a part of and um oh and it's difficult great. it's difficult and and it depends I think you know when a teacher digs in it 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 doesn't get pretty on the on the way but I think developing relationships and which I've been lucky enough to have for decades with people that I can call them and say that meeting didn't feel good. We've got to talk about how to do better next time. 
And because this is what the parents said to me, I want to share with you how they felt. And so that coordinator will go and repair with the parent. So I feel like we're moving in the right direction, but in baby steps. Well, before we say goodbye, I would love if you have any favorite resources that parents should be aware of, if this is something that you know, is really resonating with them and they want to learn more, dig more maybe into some research. Do you have any go-to resources for us? Well, I would say if you're interested in learning more about communication disorders, the American Speech and Hearing Association has a wonderful website for parents and talks a lot about evaluations and so forth. And I, they've redone their website and I think it's very parent-friendly. I would also tell them to go to their school district and look at their common cores and and what their philosophy is and and their mission statement and so forth. I think that rings true and gives you a really good idea of how things will look if you you're transferring from a different to a different school district or a different state to see how your IEP will will, will work. Great. Well, and is there a place that listeners can connect with you or learn more about your work as well? Of course. So you can reach me at www.con, C-A-W-N, that's me, dash Krantz, K-R-A-N-T-Z dot com. That's our website that's currently a bit under construction. (laughs) Um, Or you can always reach me at Sherry, S-H-E-R-R-I, S as in Sam, L as in Leo, P as in Paul, at Comcast.net. I'm great at email. Excellent. Hard, harder than phone calls. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, that's good to know. And listeners, I'll include links on the show notes pages if you do want to get in touch with Sherry or, or learn more about her work. But this has been just fascinating. I learned so much. So thank you so much for sharing all of this with our audience and yeah, for coming by the podcast. Yeah, it was an honor for me as well. So I really, I'm in your audience, Debbie. I think you're doing a an amazing job. So thank you for letting me have the opportunity. I, I look forward to hearing if your listeners have any questions. You've been listening to the Tilt Parenting Podcast. For the show notes for this episode, including a link to Sherry's website, her email information, and all the resources we discussed today, visit tiltparenting.com slash session 168. Don't forget to leave a rating or a review or both for Tilt Parenting on iTunes if you haven't done so already. Those ratings and reviews help keep this podcast visible in an ever-growing sea of podcasts. We're up to nearly one and a quarter million downloads, so this is working. Thank you so much for your help. Lastly, for the price of a coffee at your local coffee shop once a month, you can support the production of this show. It's easy, it's pain-free, and I would be grateful for the help. To learn how to sign up and support this podcast, go to patreon.com slash tiltparenting. And that's all for this week. Thanks again for listening. And for more information on Tilt Parenting, visit www.tiltparenting.com.
When it comes to raising kids, there's so much to consider. Things like, what do we feed them? When do we feed them? How do they sleep? What does it look like to raise kind kids? How does their nervous system work? How do I keep myself calm? What are my triggers? There's so much that comes into play, and we are distilling all of that information for you at Voices of Your Village podcast, where we bring experts in the field of early childhood and education and psychology and across the board so that you don't have to comb the internet for information. You get to show up and hang out and have shame-free, judgment-free conversations and insights into what it looks like to raise kind, empathetic, emotionally intelligent humans. I'm Alyssa Blask Campbell. I have a master's degree in early childhood education. I'm a mom of two, and I am walking this journey right alongside you doing this work. Come hang out with me at Voices of Your Village, and we can dive into real conversations with actionable tips.